All right. Man, I am so excited to be with you guys. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. I've been gone the past two weeks. My wife and I were so excited. Newborn baby boy, his name's Trip. We are so great. Yeah, thank y'all. No. Yeah, we're so thankful. She's at home. My daughter Lily, son Trip. She's an all-star. So to lead us in worship, we're going to nap this morning. I'm, you know what, I say that, and then I know someone's coming up and be like, you think you're tired? What about your wife? And I'm like, I know she's more tired, but I'm still tired. But no, but all I have to say is, man, I am so excited to be back with you guys. To jump back into the series, You Can Change. For some of you that are wondering, looking up at this, because this is a little different, a little new, it's a visual illustration. It's going to come at the very end. Hopefully, it all works out together. Visual aids are kind of tricky. I'm only sharing that so you don't sit here and think about it the entire time, right? So now you know visual aid for the end, unless it gets crazy and I bring it out sooner, but that's what this is. But man, really, as Jonathan shared, welcome. Whether you know Jesus Christ and you have walked with him for a long time, or you are totally new to faith, or you have no idea who Jesus is or why he's good, and when all you see when it comes to faith, Christianity, religion, is division and strife, wherever you are, man, really glad you're here. Join with me as we start with just a time of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for the chance to come and remind myself of you, to talk about the truth of how you call us to change, those who believe in you to change. And Father, I want to change. Would you make me more like you? Would you make your people more like you? Would you help us to be different? May we not pursue it for vanity or foolishness or any broken or false motive, but only for the glory that awaits in you. I need your help to do that. We need your help to do that. If you guys would, just in your seats, if you have a faith, take the next 10 seconds and pray that God would use this time in your life. He'd grow you or he'd strengthen you through it. If y'all would, please take another 10 seconds and pray for me. I'm privileged in the week, but I'm a little tired. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, I'm so excited about the series that we're in, You Can Change. It's very creatively titled, You Can Change. We've been doing this since right about the beginning of the year. Where I first kind of started to get the idea for this series was, one, reflecting on my own life, some things I was going through, but then, two, there was actually this uh, article, or, or better, I should say, a magazine that I came across. It's just a Time magazine. It says, The Science of Success. I saw this right around the new year, new year, new me, new year, new you. I was like, I would love to know if there's a formula to success, and I would love to know how they define success. All I have to say is it's a pretty interesting small little booklet and read. The second chapter introduced me to something that I'd never heard of, right? It introduced me to this concept, to this idea that for a lot of folks basically can almost define the future. Will you be successful? Will you be moderately successful? Will you not be very successful? Will you be successful? And it came down to one test, and that test included one delicious piece of food. Anyone here ever heard of the marshmallow test? No? Okay, I think after I explain it, some of y'all will. In the 60s, it's Stanford. They did a bunch of really scary, creepy te tests. This one was actually kind of cool. They would take children, four to six years old, and they'd come, they'd bring them in. There were professors there, psychologists. They're observing children, four to six years old. They brought them into a room. 
a fun room, kid-proof room, all this kind of stuff. They set them down on the table, and then they put in front of them one jumbo marshmallow. One jumbo marshmallow. And then the professor would say to the child, hey, here's what we'll do, right? You're welcome to eat this one marshmallow, but if you wait 15 minutes, I'll give you another jumbo marshmallow. They were testing to see who had patience, who had self-denial, who could restrain themselves, all that kind of stuff. Again, ages four to six. But what the professor would do, they'd come, they'd set them up, then they'd go out. They had one of those mirrors where they could look through, see the kids. Kids couldn't see them. Guess what happened in the results? A whole bunch of kids just ate the marshmallow. They absolutely just ate the marshmallow. I got a three-year-old. She would have, like, crushed that marshmallow before the professor, like, finished the statement, right? Because they're trying to test and see what was in kids that said no. And they watched and they examined this. And here's what was fascinating. They went on to study these kids for the next 20 to 30 years sometimes. And they tracked these different markers because it's hard to define what is success. They tracked markers of things like academic excellence, professional achievement, emotional maturity, difficulty, ability and difficulty to cope with hard situations, right? Social relationships and stability. They tracked these markers to see, okay, how did these ones do? And there was an absolute correlation between the kids who said no to the marshmallow, they waited 15 minutes and got a second, and the ones who had higher levels of quote-unquote achievement. It was interesting, though, as I read this, because that was the part, like, you're reading this, and I'm sitting here, and I'm literally, I'm thinking about my daughter's like, okay, she's three. They started this at four-year-olds. I got a whole year to, like, train her. All right, sweetheart, I'm going to set one. Just wait one minute, one minute, and then I'll give you two. And like, we can, like, build up to 15. I could totally train her. Like, that's literally the way my mind is working. I keep reading in this booklet, because I know myself, man. I would have eaten that thing, like, right away, right? I keep reading this book, and it gives this secret it talks about because the professor would go behind the glass and they'd look through it and they'd see the kids that were in there. And it gave the secret to what these kids would do that were able to say no. They would focus their attention on something else. Like the kids that waited 15 minutes, they didn't sit there utilizing willpower, looking at a marshmallow saying, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it. No. They would get up. They would walk around the room. They'd try to create different games. Some of them would start to sing some of them would start to count. The secret to their success in these four to six-year-olds was they would come, and instead of thinking about the marshmallow, instead of thinking about this, they would think about something else. They would focus. It was fascinating because this, the science of success, it sets up this whole premise where it says, hey, success, one of the major indicators, one of the major predictors, can you control your attention? Can you focus your thoughts? It was fascinating reading this because one, I'm sitting here and I'm like, wow, there's more mental mastery in like four and six-year-olds than there is in me, right? But it's fascinating reading this because if you know your Bible, you know that's all over your Bible. Like if perhaps you've grown up in church or you've spent time reading, even as you start to say the idea of, hey, if you want to focus on godliness, if you want to become like something, if you want to change your future, change the way you think. The reason why it's so exciting is we're in this series, You Can Change, where so many of us, we come in, in whatever aspect of life, relationships, finances, faith, anything, parents, uh, baggage, trauma from the past, guilt that we feel, shame. 
there's areas of our life where we just feel stuck. There's areas of our lives where we want to change. We want to be a more compassionate husband. We want to be more of a spiritual leader in the home. We want to be more of a spiritual leader in dating. We want to pursue excellence in our job. We want to actually be able to forgive someone because we've come to realize not forgiving them is absolutely hurting us more than it's hurting them. But we can't. We're stuck. And, and maybe you tried to change and change for you. You did it for a little while and it kind of worked and then, then you totally fell off the wagon, right? You fell off the wagon and then you tried it again and it worked again for like a little while and then you fell off the wagon and then again in a little while and you fell off the wagon to where you finally come to this point like I'm tired of the yo-yo, man. I'm tired of going back and forth in, in this thought of you can change. We stop believing that. Why I'm thinking about this marshmallow test is it just shows something that God Almighty has told you and he's told me. If you want to change, and, and like for Christians, what, when I say change, what I mean is, yeah, this can apply to everything from uh, weight loss to career to, to, to whatever you want, but I'm talking about like things that are glorious, things that are of eternal worth, increased holiness, real maturity, actual disciplined intimacy with God, like a relationship with God that when other people look at it, it's attractive. Not like so many of us where we just go through and like, oh yeah, you believe in Jesus? Yeah, me too. Huh, I wouldn't have known that. That's the type of change we're after. Where does that start? It starts with what you think. Today, I want to spend some time talking about how you and I, church, you and I, Christian, we are called to rule our thoughts, to rule our thoughts. I, I intentionally use the word rule because of the passage where we're going to go. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, because what I mean there is literally a ruler. I almost said dictator. That's what I almost put it as, because I wanted to have this sense of when it comes to our thoughts, there's no one who's more in control, Christian, because you have the power of the Holy Spirit than you. You have the authority and you have the ability to rule with a righteous iron fist the thoughts you tolerate. Because here's why I think this matters so much. Like when I talk to people or man, when I think about my own life, so many of us, we do not make our thoughts bow to God. We, we do not rule our thoughts. We bow to our thoughts. Our thoughts rule us to where these things that maybe we know to be false, they become true. I'll never really feel close to God. I'll never be able to change. I'll never have the marriage that I always wanted. I'll never be able to get in control of my finances. I'll never have the actual peace that people talk about. I'll never be free from past trauma or anxiety or brokenness in my life. All of those thoughts, all of a sudden over time, they become truths to us, and they're not. What I want to talk about today as we continue the series, You Can Change, is how you and I, I'm pleading with you because I'm pleading with me. We're no longer going to tolerate unholy, ungodly, unbiblical thoughts. If you want to change, it starts here. You must rule with a righteous, glorious, God 
enabled, Holy Spirit empowered, iron fist, your thoughts. Because we all know this, right? If you change what you think, right? You change how you feel, you change what you believe, you change what you believe, you change how you act, you change how you act, you change your habits, you change your habits, you change your life from one degree of glory to another. All throughout your Bible, it says this is where you start. Just, just let me read some of these. Romans 12, 2, right? You don't have to turn here. We'll put them up here. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we called to change? By the renewal of your mind. Philippians 4, 8. Philippians 4, 8, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what should you do? Think about these things. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Holiness, guys. Godly transformation, godly change. It starts here. So today, what are we going to focus on? We're going to talk about how you and I are called to rule our thoughts. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, you, you can turn there. We're going to set it up. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where we're going to see it's this warfare language, and there's this controversy within this local church in Corinth, and we're going to talk about how do you and I rule our emotions. And then at the second half of this, we're going to get very practical. We're going to really come, and what I want to do is I want to give you a tool that I've used in my own life. It's just a, a thought process. It's a framework for how we actually do this, because here's what's true. You can come, and I can say, hey, Stop thinking bad thoughts. Stop thinking ungodly things. Stop tolerating sinful mindsets and attitudes. And if you're like me, you're like, okay, I'll try. How do I do that? To where we'll end this very practical talking through how. So if you got a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Kind of as you're turning, I'm, I'm going to set up this passage. The author of this text this morning, his name's the Apostle Paul. He's this big-time church leader. He's writing to this church in Corinth. He'd written them multiple times. Corinth was this foolish place, bunch of sin in it. Paul had come to try to bring health, spiritual leadership, spiritual maturity, and there was this faction. There was this disunity within the church, brokenness where people were saying, don't listen to Paul, don't trust Paul, that's not right, and they were coming against him. They'd come to Paul, and right before this, they'd made fun of him. One of the things that was true of the man that wrote the majority of your New Testament, right, is sometimes he's described as someone who would come, and in face-to-face, -face, he wasn't as bold, he wasn't strong, charismatic, he wasn't this out-front leader, though you see repeated times of that in the New Testament. He was actually probably much more introverted, quiet. I think there's this passage where he's writing to Timothy, and here's why this all matters. He writes this passage to Timothy where he says, hey, because you have the Spirit of God within you, do not be overcome with fear. Because you have the Spirit, you have the power of control, love, not timidity, and self-discipline. Because he felt the same thing as you and I, timidity. And the people, this faction, these unbelievers in this church were mocking that. They were saying, oh, Paul, when he writes these letters, he comes in strong. He comes in authoritatively. He has all this passion, all this energy. And then he shows up face to face, and he's meek, he's mild, he's quiet, he's respectful. 
And right before the passage where we're going to pick it up, Paul is addressing this faction, this group of false teachers. And he's saying, hey, guys, I'm going to come and see you. And he uses sarcasm. He says, hey, you mocked me for my meekness. I pray that when I come to you, you don't experience my boldness. And then he talks about where he's going to come and the foolish ideologies, the foolish worldviews, the wrong thoughts, the wrong teachings, the bad ideas that they have been putting on the people of God. He says, hey, I'm going to come and go to war with those. What you have and you're trying to bring to the people, I will come and bring mastery to those. And that's what sets up this context. Why that context matters, is, as we'll explain in a little bit, is who is the primary audience of the text. Because Christian... The primary audience of this passage, it's not you. But does it apply to us? Yes. So if you have a Bible, read with me. I'm going to read verses 4 through 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So Paul, he's come, he's found this faction, he's addressing this group of people, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to demolish, or excuse me, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Guys, I'm so excited to look at this because here's what Paul's saying. As we continue the series, you can change. He's going to start with, you got to take serious what you think. Remember his language, take captive every thought. He's going to come and he's going to really focus on your thought life, your mentality, your mindfulness, your attitude. What you tolerate here matters. And that's where he's going to come and he's going to share. Rule your thoughts. But why the context matters is where he's starting. Paul's not saying to this church in Corinth, hey, church, Christians, rule your thoughts. He's saying, hey, this broken worldview, broken ideology, false teaching, false belief, I will come, and your mental fortress, your mental stronghold, by the power of God, I'll destroy. The thoughts that you're putting against the holiness of God, I will come, those who don't believe in Jesus Christ rightly, I will come, and not with weapons of the flesh, but with weapons of God, will demolish them. It's Paul saying, in a righteousness, you want to hold up false thoughts against God? I will come and I will go to war. Why? This is worth fighting over. Here's the fascinating thing. That's what Paul says as he goes to engage with people who don't believe. So, so a side application in this church, when you come around and we find people who, who don't love God, honor God, respect God, you say, yeah, I get it. That makes complete sense. But then as followers of Jesus, do we just lean out? No. That's when we lean in. And we don't lean in with the best wisdom, logic, reasoning, philosophies of men. You lean in with a divine power that comes from God alone. Because you have to engage the thought. But what we do for people who don't believe, here's why this applies to us. We absolutely must do for ourselves as well. Because as you come and you engage with false views, false thoughts, lies, you absolutely have to engage with your own. I have to engage with my own. The thoughts of, does God really care? The thoughts of, does God hear me? The thoughts of, does God help me? The thoughts of, is God for me? The thoughts of, is this really true? 
the thoughts of, will I ever change? You have to apply that to yourself as well. Because as you see this, not only does it talk about kind of thinking through this text, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but they have divine power of the flesh. This is talking about like, hey man, Paul's not showing up to a fight with some man-made reason, logic, or weapon. He's showing up to something with divine power. If you were with us the first week when we talked about this series, we talked about the reason you can change because the power of the Holy Spirit within you divinely enabling it. God not only calls you to change, he helps you. The next thing we really see here is Paul's language. What does he say? He says, destroy strongholds. Take every thought captive. Destroy, destroy. He uses warfare language. A stronghold would have literally been a fortress. It would have literally been like a prison that's surrounded He's using language of one army coming against another in a stronghold. And he's saying, you come against the stronghold and you destroy it. And then what does it say? Once you destroy it, you don't just leave it there and move on. You capture it. You take what was once an enemy and you make it part of you, the army, the team. Well, I think that matters so much is even as we talk about thoughts, right? Right? I don't have good enough language to convey to people why holiness for you hangs in the balance of what you think and how God is zealous for holiness in people who believe. He's zealous for it. That's what he wants. That's what he calls. That's what he desires. And you and I, we so often tolerate what Christ died for. Like I tolerate the view, does he really care? Yet, he died on my behalf. He said on the cross, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. He promised in his return, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Does he really care? He is guaranteed in me by faith the Holy Spirit. Does he really care? Yes! He really cares. We tolerate. Hey, I, I, I can never forgive them for what they did. I can never forgive them. And God, in his word, he says, no, I know what it's like to righteously outhold. But you entrust that judgment to me. Vengeance is mine. And then he reminds, in you, in you, John, in you, you have been forgiven much. Your debt against me was far greater than their debt against you. You can forgive. Why? I have forgiven you. Remember, I have forgiven you. We tolerate what we shouldn't tolerate. I've tried to stop sinning. I've tried to stop smoking, drinking, looking at porn, being an anxious control freak, domineering in my marriage, having a temper that really defines what my kids will think about me when they're older, right? Being an apathetic spiritual leader in the home. And you know what? When I look at my kids, my wife, my friends, I can tell that I'm an apathetic spiritual leader. I'm seeing the fruit of it. We tolerate that mindset. Do you know what Paul is calling for? Destroy it. Capture every thought. To capture literally means to take you at the end of a spear. I wish I had better language to convey to you and to me how so much of the direction of my life, of your life, 
is determined by what you think. I'll never be married. God's forgotten me. My parents will never be able to get along in a peaceable way. Marriage, it's just a throwaway. I've been confused my entire life when it comes to my, my gender, my sexuality, my views on God, what is true, what is not true. I'll never be able to find divinely empowered clarity. Don't tolerate what he died for. We destroy that. Why? That's why we rule. That's, not, that, that's why we didn't say, think about God, that being the subject. The, the focus is you rule your thoughts with a righteous, divinely empowered iron fist. Anything in my life that falls short doesn't cut it. And I love, too, how the passage, it says you're supposed to do this with every thought. Right? We take captive every thought. I love it, too, because so many times, do you ever think through how you and I were called to examine every thought? Because not everything you think is bad, right? Often, many times, there's like righteous thoughts where you think about God, and then there's just totally neutral, right? Totally neutral. Who will win the Super Bowl, right? Totally neutral. What will we eat for dinner? Hopefully, tacos. That's my personal favorite. I advocate for that consistently. That's totally neutral. Sometimes, that's honestly a little righteous, right? You can put it in these, but you have to come and you have to examine every single one. You ever hung out with somebody, and maybe this is you right now, like new year, new you, and they want to do, pre- it's easier with two things, right? Weight, getting healthier physically, or finances. Let's start with finances. Let's say you want to get really serious about your finances, where, where you see consumer debt spending up, and you want to steward your money better, wisely, righteously. What's a lot of times, what do people tell you to do? Make a budget, right? I know it's basic, stay with me. Bunch of y'all being like, I've been to Dave Ramsey, move on. Stay with me. You make a budget, but then what do you do? You track every penny. And you make sure every penny that's spent is allocated correctly. You do it with your finances. Paul's saying, do it with your thoughts. I have friends, and I wish I was more in this camp, working on it, right? You can't change. Who they come, and they want to take physical health really seriously. And for them, part of that comes in like, okay, I'm going to examine everything I put in my mouth for what I eat. And you know what they do? They keep a food log. They write down everything that they consume. Because what happens when you do it with everything? Not just some, but with everything. You see the good, the neutral, and the bad. And you fight to rightly allocate. Guys, it's serious. Does a ruler know what happens in his kingdom? Does does an officer in an army, when going to take a stronghold and then capture it, does he understand what's taking place? Yes. You do it with everything. Why? So that you may make it obedient to Christ. One of the greatest truths is that the more and more you and I become like Jesus, sincerely like, that sounds so cliche, and maybe not for you, but like for me sometimes when I say that, it just sounds so cliche, and people are like, oh, yeah, 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 God, I got it. No, really. When you become like him, when you make every thought obedient to him, there's freedom. There's real joy. It will help you with your anxiety. 
It will help you with your depression. It will help you with your greed. It will help you with your self-righteousness and looking down on other people and thinking you're better, you know better, or there is better than them. We are called to make everything obedient to Christ. That's why we take every thought captive. Why that matters so much is I, I, I tend to come in with my faith. I compartmentalize it. You know, I make this something, hey, I show up on Sunday, right? And then occasionally throughout the week, right, I'll, I'll, I'll like plug on like Christian radio. And if they're not like fundraising, I'll listen to two songs and then I'll go to the radio station that I actually like. You know, yeah, not you. Okay, just me. Got it. Right? And we find these compartments. He wants everything. Do you know why that should really encourage and excite you? Because the more you make obedient to him, the more he gets everything. That's where intimacy is. That's where the sense of, I don't have it all together but he's not going to leave me. He won't forsake me. That's where the real truth of, like for me this past week, holding my son, looking at my son, and there's this thing, and if you don't have kids, I pray one day you feel this, or if you do have kids, like you probably get it, but you get the idea. Like I literally, I turned the corner last night. It's late at night. He's laying on a changing table. My wife's looking at him. I've known this guy besides the womb. I've known him for like five days, maybe six. I'm a little tired. Forgot how many days, right? I've known him for that short a time. I'm just drawn to him. Like I look at him and I just think, I love that guy. Like he's mine. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to train you. And I'm going to raise you to be a man of God. I and I, I literally prayed this. I pray to God you avoid the scars that I have. But I pray to God you're more passionate, more zealous, more courageous, more disciplined, more focused on him. That's my prayer for a five-year-old boy. Five day, excuse me. Super tired. <laughs> I love, I love teaching, man. But you come. Because what happens when you make everything obedient? You get everything. That's where intimacy is. If I feel that way for him, how much more must God feel that way for me, feel that way for you? Where he says, like, I don't want that boy to hide things from me. I don't even care if it's dysfunction. I want to help him. I want him to know, I always have your back. I will always help you. Sin may bring consequence, but I'm here to help. I never want there to be a moment where he knows he's alone or is without love. Never. That's why God wants all of you, every thought obedient. But if you remember how we set it up as we, as we call each other to rule our emotions, we talked about how, at least if you're like me, and honestly, you are, we can know that. But that can be hard. That can be difficult. So what I want to do is, is shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the mechanics of how I think about this. I want to put forward a framework for how you in your own life, I pray that you think about it this way. And what I want to do is I want to give you four principles, four words, four ideas for how you do this. The first one, capture. Second, cross-examine. The third, correct. And the fourth, commit. These are four words that start with the letter C because when I do things that have alliteration, it helps me to actually remember it, right? Right? But what are they meant to do? The moments when I find the thoughts, the moments when I, and this happened to me this week, 
or I start to spiral out. How do I stop the spiral? How do I catch myself? Why? Because I wish I wanted godliness more than what I do. But the part of me that really does, it's worth pursuing that with all that I have. So what do we do? We have to actually fight to destroy. We have to actually fight to take thoughts captive. Here's how we do that. The first C I want to talk about is how you actually do this. How you actually come and rule your thoughts. It's capture, right? Surprising language there, capture. If you remember, what Paul even meant by this is take at the end of a spear. You ever find yourself all of a sudden upset? Where all of a sudden you're in a moment and you're having a good day, but then all of a sudden emotionally things are off and you're upset. And then someone looks at you and they're like, hey, you're upset. We should do something about this. Happened to me yesterday. My wife looked at me. It was the afternoon. I was planning on using the afternoon to go do one thing. And she looked at me and said, hey, I can tell you're off. Will you do me and our family a favor? And will you go take a nap? Literally what happened. She caught it in me before I realized it in myself. What do you have to work to do to get upstream, to identify the moment, the thought where you start to go off the rails, where you start to miss it? Typically, a way you can, can capture it is when your emotions change, start thinking backwards to say, okay, when did my thinking change? For me, yesterday afternoon, that happened, thinking about, and I'm grateful, I was excited for it, but thinking about, okay, man, I got a lot of stuff I got to do today, and then tomorrow, and there's a meeting that I got to prep for, I got to line all this out, I got to make sure my sermon's clear, I need a nap, but I'm tired, but honestly, my energy's a little bit low, what if I just go work out, and my mind was just spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning. What was the thought? I'm out of control. I need to be in control. That's where I went wrong. And you gotta track back and identify the thought. You gotta capture it. For some of us, that happens on the Friday night when you think you're gonna go hang out with friends, all right? When you think you're gonna get invited and then you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you don't get invited or you know that they go and you're intentionally left out and all of a sudden you're sad. You track that back to the thought of, okay, here's the thought. I thought they'd reach out, and when they didn't, that means they don't care, like me, or value me. For some of you, this thought, right, it's been your marriage for decades, for two years, for two weeks. It's been the thought of, this isn't what I thought it would be. I wish it was better. This is a letdown. And you come and you have that thought, but it just shows up in the emotion. And as I even say that language to some of you, you're like, oh man, I'm not supposed to acknowledge that, but I kind of feel that. You got to capture those thoughts. Because when you capture it, you identify it, right? I can remember, right? And, and here's the heart too of like the tone that you're supposed to do it. I had a foolish moment once where I intentionally and unintentionally in college ran from the police the police chased me. I didn't really know they were chasing me. I'll tell you about it another time, right? I got there. I ran back to this house that I was living in. I sat on this couch. They're like, that was close. Thought I totally got away with it. Ten seconds later, police officer walks through, unholsters his gun, and then he looks at me. He didn't point at me, but he looks at me. He says, son, did you just run from me? Dude, I was like, I'll do whatever you want, man, right? I will do whatever you want, in that moment, there was no doubt in my mind who was in charge of the room. Y'all track with that? I was captured 
I was done, at the end of a spear, done. When I say track down your thoughts, capture your thoughts, that's the intensity I'm talking about. Not like, la, 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 I wonder what I'm thinking. No, I'm talking about, okay, what is this? Hey, hey, wife, friend, community group, spouse, friends, whoever. Hey, what is this? What is this thought? How do I track this down? Stop being made a fool of by what you think. Your thoughts are your own worst enemy. They're mine. Capture them. Track it down. Take it seriously. Because here's the thing, guys. Here's why it matters so much. You are what you think. Do you know that? Like, do you know who, the, who your favorite preacher is? Do you know who that person is? It's you. You are the number one preacher in your life. And you self-preach thoughts about you and God and friends and family and hopes and dreams and change all the time. And it makes you who you are. You are what you think. And this is God pleading with you to identify what are you telling yourself because if it's not true, we have to change it. Our first one is capture. That's how you rule your thoughts. You capture it. You identify it. The second one, you got to cross-examine. You have to come and cross-examine. Now, my dad, he was a lawyer. He, he never did in the courtroom, but I've watched, a bunch, I've watched a bunch of TV shows where they do this in a courtroom, been in a couple of them, right? There's a witness stand or the piece of evidence, and you have like a defendant or a defending attorney, whatever that person's called, and then a prosecutor, and they're like arguing over what is true, what is right. He did it. No, he didn't do it. This piece of evidence works. No, this piece of evidence doesn't. This is where you come, and having captured the thought, you hold that thought up, and you ruthlessly examine it. Here's another one. Hey, I could do this because no one will really know if I do this. Therefore, it's not really hurting anyone. That's a thought. That's a total thought. What would cross-examination of that look like? Well, technically, you could totally hide that, not tell anyone, and then no one on this earth could arguably ever know. True. Cross-examine. Other thought, God in heaven knows. He wants you to have freedom from when you're in public and when you are in private. He's looking to change all of you, not parts of you. He doesn't want you to have two different versions of you. He wants it to be you because here's the deal. He loves the person who's alone, who trusts him, and he loves the person who's alone that doesn't trust him. You see the cross-examination? Hey, my, my marriage, or, or let's just pick sobriety, right? You could pick sobriety of like a, a depressing thought, a foolishness to alcohol, to narcotics, to sexual addiction. You could pick anything. You could make it your greed. You could make sobriety from your self-righteousness and thinking you already do this really well and you're great at this and you wish everyone else was as good at this as you are. You cross-examine that and you think to yourself, okay, does it really matter if I relapse? Does it really matter if I'm faithful? Does this one moment indicate that I'm a failure? Or, or what if I do it again? Am I still loved? Am I still cherished? Am I still forgiven? I, I, I can't change. I'm going to do it even though I don't want to do it. I have a divine power that means I can walk away in the midst of any temptation on this planet by faith. 
No temptation's overtaken me except what's common. And God is faithful. He'll always provide a way out. You cross-examine. To, to say it differently, this is when you come and you take the thought and you wrestle with it. You poke holes in it. You examine it. You see, is it true? Is it false? You don't just tolerate it. Third one. Third one. You correct. This is where you come. You've captured the thought. You've cross-examined it. You've held it up in the light. You've examined what's right and what's true, and you correct it with what's actually true. If I sin again, even though I don't want to, I am just a sinner in God's disappointment. Cross-examine. Okay, what does it mean to sin? How does that displease him? But how can he not be disappointed? Okay, and then you correct it. Here's what's true. Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. You correct it with the truth. You can come. My marriage, man, this is just my lot in life. I've tried, she gave up. I've tried, he gave up. It won't ever really change. You come and you cross-examine, okay, what does God want for marriage? Do you know he wants every believer in Jesus Christ to have the best marriage, the best he literally says it's the institution that's meant to display his love. You think he wants to help you in your marriage? Yes. You cross-examine. And then you fight to think, okay, in the garden where marriage is taken, right? They were no longer two. They were one flesh. They were naked. They were unashamed. That's intimacy. Do you know that? That's what he wants for your marriage. And you correct it with the truth. Hey, I'll never be disciplined enough to spend time with God, to, to wake up early or to do it later. I'll never be able to connect with him in his word. I've tried so many times. doesn't matter how many she-read truth journals I buy or ESV study Bibles I buy or if it's leather-bound or if I buy a nice pen or if I get all the highlighters that I like or if I like Instagram it to like encourage others. It doesn't matter. I just can't do it. You know Colossians 1, right there, in the, the final verse of the chapter, it says as God calls you to maturity, he supplies you with the energy to do it. Do you know that if you fight to draw near to him, he will draw near to you? Do you know that his word says that he not only is honored by those, he's pleased by those who draw near, but he rewards those who seek him? You know he'll help you? You know you can't, you correct you have to fight to correct. This is the difference the way I think about it between a uh, roller coaster and driving a car. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean. Roller coaster, you just come and you get on this ride. Oftentimes, you don't know where it's going, but you know you're strapped in and you're taken along for the ride. You love parts of it and some parts of it, like for me when they do the loop and the loop or the twirl part, it makes you sick and you want off, Right? You have good moments and you have bad, but you're taken for a ride. Or you can come and you can drive a car where you are in control. You turn right when you want to turn right. You turn left when you want to turn left. You accelerate, you stop, you are in control. Guys, so many of us, we're just strapped in for the ride of our thought life. We don't drive. I got to see this lived out in a movie recently Maybe you guys have seen it. I'm not spoiling anything. It was in the trailer. But y'all watch this next one-minute clip that I hope visually demonstrates the difference between you correct, you drive, you rule your thoughts, and stop 
being taken for just a ride. Watch this. You ready? The name on the middle of that steering wheel should tell you that I was born ready, Shelby. Hit it. Attaboy. It's about right now the uninitiated have a tendency to soil themselves. I would have totally soiled myself, right? <laughs> if you haven't seen that movie, it's Ford versus Ferrari, right? Here's what it's just meant to show. It's meant to show, so, and it's intentionally taken to extremes here. So many of us, man, we don't drive. We don't correct. We don't capture. We don't cross-examine. We are taken for a ride. That we do not make our thoughts bow to God we bow to our thoughts, that we do not master our mindset. Our mindset masters us. When God in heaven has given you and he's given me freedom, he wants you to rule your thoughts. He helps you. In order to correct, though, you know what we have to do? We have to know what's true. In order to correct, you know what we have to do? We have to know what needs correction. That's the beautiful part, is you go to capture your thoughts, is you go to rule your thoughts. The prevailing direction where this always leads is you and me getting to know God. You and I fighting, as I did this past week, as I sat in a hospital room Googling something. I typed in sovereignty of God and Bible. Why? I had a whole bunch of verses, not a whole bunch. I had verses come to my mind, but they weren't the verses that I wanted. And I had to sit there and read through a list. Why? I did not know how to correct my thought. I did not know how to change what I was thinking. And I needed help because I was cross-examining something that I'd captured and I was losing. To set that up briefly, my son Tripp, when he was born, he's healthy, mom is healthy, but there was a scary moment for me. My daughter, Lily, she's three. Some of you may know, some of you may not. When she was born, she was born really sick. We thought she was going to die. We were in the NICU for about 47 days. It was real touch and go. Like, literally, parents brought clothes for funeral. Like, the whole thing. And by the mercy and the grace of God, when some people bury their children, we did not bury Lily. That's a mercy, that's a grace. He gives, he takes, we will bless the Lord. That informed how I viewed birthing. That was my first experience, right? Second one, my wife, five weeks in, and it's honest, but here's the whole truth, man. You gotta do this. It's honest, and we're great. Five weeks in, second child, we have a miscarriage. I'm back in the doctor's office, negative news. I'm in doctors, doctors, negative, babies, sickness, sad. 
trip comes. We're driving to the hospital. We're going there. We're going to be induced. We're driving there. And I look at my wife, right? And this is confession. I look at her and I say, hey, sweetheart, because of the past, right now, I feel entitled to an easy birth where it just goes well, right? Where you like watch it on TV. There's some screaming. Then you hold a baby. Everything's fine. Nobody stresses out. Doctors don't freak out. I feel entitled to that. And as I saw St. Luke's Hospital in San Antonio right here, we prayed pulling in the parking lot because I said, hey, that, can't, that entitlement can't be in me. Lord, we trust you. We love you. I was fighting to change what I thought. There came a moment, my wife, she labored fine. Everything went well. And there was this moment where we switched. We we're going to do a C-section, right? And there's this energy in the room. And again, everything ended up fine. There's this energy in the room. And I can remember, man, everything switched. That whole day, I'd said to her, I'd said to the doctors, the longer we wait to get baby out, the greater risk there is to mom and to child. The longer we wait. I can remember the moment changed in the room. All of a sudden, like calmness became an urgency. The walk became a run. The, hey, dad, you have to wait here. When before, I was set to go. So they take Taylor down, they go to the C-section, and what becomes just scheduled all of a sudden has this feeling of emergency. But no one's told me this. Eventually they came and they brought me down, which that's a good sign. I knew that was a good sign. They brought me down to the OR. I sit there, I sit beside Taylor, and she goes to get a C-section. You don't know what that is. It's surgery where they bring out the baby. And I'm in there, and the energy's off. Something's not right. My son Trip, they bring him out of the womb. My daughter Lily, when they brought her out of the womb, she didn't cry. Trip, he came, but he had this gargled cry. You want a dry cry? The only reason I know that is that's not what Lily had. There's this wet cry. They're suctioning. Literally, there's this team from the NICU where there's this button behind them. I remember them pushing the button for Lily to take and go one direction, and I'm waiting to find out and see if they'll take it and go. They didn't push that button. They eventually tended to him. They got this fluid out of him. They came, set baby on mama. I can remember the anesthesiologist said, here, I'll take a picture. I can remember thinking, this is not right, but okay. Because you go in, like every doctor, I was the paranoid dad, here's everything that's wrong, here's what I want to avoid. I was totally that. We go in, we get to the recovery room, I still know something's not right. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, I hadn't slept very much in like three days, right? But I'm just crying and I'm sitting there and the doctor comes in. She looks at me and she says, you and her are very lucky not good when doctors say that to you. You are very lucky. My wife, the womb, uterus, it had ruptured. It had torn. They're supposed to cut it. They opened it, and they saw we don't need to cut it. It's already torn open. It's a very dangerous thing. It can hurt the health of mom. It can hurt the child, right? It can lead to basically a hysterectomy, right, or bleeding out. All these problems. I didn't know any of this. I just knew something was terribly wrong in the moment. And the doctor came and the doctor said, hey, we think everything's fine. We think we fixed it. Maybe it impacts some future decisions, but we fixed this. Boy's fine. Mom's fine. You're fine. And I'm sitting here and I'm crying. I'm like, I'm not fine. But everyone's fine. And that's where honestly, like I feel bad even talking about this because that's the part where you go to a hospital and I get Sometimes it's not fine, and even when it's not fine, you still praise God. You still capture your thoughts, you cross-examine, you correct it with truth, and you tell yourself, even if they're not fine and it won't make sense, 
one day in eternity, you promise me that you'll make it for good. And you cling to that. The next day, I was in the hospital. Still hadn't slept all that much. Here was the thought that I had, that I sat on for about a day and a half. And by the way, I didn't know I was going to teach on all this. If it feels manufactured to you, I get it. I had the thought, God is sovereign, but I am scared. And everyone was fine. God is sovereign, but I'm scared. For the longest time, God had been this comfort in me, the one who always had my back, who'd be there, who'd help me in the midst of anything, where there's this trust, there's this real reliance, and I began to feel a sense of, well, man, can I trust you? Like you knew the last time. I knew that there's like a 1% chance that what happened to Taylor would happen, and we're in the, the less than 1% chance again. I know you're sovereign, but your sovereignty scares me. And I had to get out my phone because I didn't know how to cross-examine. I didn't know what to correct it with because everything I had was the heart of man plans his way the Lord establishes his step. The purpose and the mind of the Lord will not be thwarted. I had all these things that were just sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty in the connection, but I was having a hard time connecting the dots. I came to a proverb. It's in Proverbs 21. I tried to memorize it. I, I didn't. This is it paraphrased. Man plans his way but God's will will not be thwarted. He is sovereign. But the next part, and what does he call for? Steadfast love. And it says something to the effect of, in poverty is better than riches ill-gotten. It's, it's love and holiness. And I sat there and I thought about, okay, he's sovereignty. He asks me to love him. He asks me for holiness. And then it started to reflect on, why would, he ask, why, would he, why would he ask for love? And I started to self-preach, the cross-examination, because he loves me. That my child is healthy, my child is right, and I know not all are, but his son was absolutely not. That he knows the moment where you fear and you worry for the child. As he came and he put on Jesus Christ all of my sin and all of yours, and the son was torn from, forsaken by the father. Jesus, before that night in the garden, he said, Father, if there be any other way, but if not, your will be done. You think Jesus got it? Everyone was fine. I had to capture that thought and ruthlessly fight it. Still am. Why? Because if not, man, those thoughts grow. Those thoughts change. And that's the negative direction. But if I can infill that with the positive direction, ruling my thoughts, capturing them, cross-examining, correcting, if I can go back the other direction, what awaits me? More love more joy, a life more submitted. Guys, one of the ways that I'm going to ask you to do this in your own life is to literally write these things down. I have a notes app on my phone where I write down the thought, and then I begin to wrestle with it, and I fight to correct it and instill myself in truth. Why does this matter so much? You can change. I can change. 
if you want to change, you must rule your thoughts. You destroy strongholds. You take every thought captive. How do you do it? You got to capture it. You have to cross-examine. You must correct. Fight to know God's word. And when you don't, I use Google. And have the humility to write it down. Why? It's worth it when we change. Every degree of glory closer to him. It's all worth it. Let me pray that I would do that. Father, we thank you. I thank you for the truth of your word, what it means in my life, what it means in the lives of others. Lord, uh, I do come and I praise you for the health of children. God, I ask for a faith that no matter what says you give and you take away. Blessed be the name. May I trust you no matter what. May we be a people who because we know you and we love you, that we know that you love us, that we would walk by faith, that we would rule our thoughts. We would not bow to our thoughts. We'd make our thoughts bow to you. I need your help to do that. We need your help to do that. Would you do that here today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, y'all, thank you guys for coming and hanging out. As you could tell, we didn't get to the visual aid. That's because I want to get y'all to lunch. Really glad you guys are here, though. Thanks for coming and joining us. If you have questions about anything, how to have a relationship with Jesus or what it looks like, come talk with us, but y'all go. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you next Sunday.